gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman I've got a few things to say about Superman The Carousel Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Yunus and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode 57 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today is the first episode of Imaginary Story Month. Now, I know what you're thinking. Imaginary stories are a Silver Age trope, and you would be somewhat correct. But the first one, at least in a Superman comic, actually took place back in the Golden Age. Um, But the imaginary stories were used much more frequently during the Silver Age like a lot and while they died down in their use later on they still are in use to this day otherwise DC wouldn't have Elseworlds or the multiverse and Marvel wouldn't have all their what if series so this month we're going to look at a couple of stories that actually end up taking place in the future for the most part and while one doesn't feature any of Superman's regular supporting cast the other one features pretty much everybody But first, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by InStock Trades. A mainstay of the collected edition market, InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. This month, their 12 months of the the end-of-the-world sales continue in in-stock trades with Crisis, which offers DC trades for 45% off. Plus, all new DC trades and hardcovers for pre-order this month are 50% off as well. So, check them out at www.instocktrades.com. Next up, we have your answers to last episode's super question of what is your favorite era of Superman? For me, I think I'd have to go with post-crisis. Or post-crisis on Infinite Earth, since there's more crises now. Uh, Mostly because that was the era that I actually started my collecting in. And I got to actually watch it unfold each and every week. 
and that's the first era I have a complete collection of. So I've actually read it from start to finish, and granted, it's not perfect, but you know, it's still good and holds a special place in my heart. The Bronze Age is a close second, but you know, by the time I started collecting, it was it had been over for seven years, I think. Now, as far as your answers, one of our newest likes for the Superman Bronze Age, in the Bronze Age is Andrew Medley, who writes that he likes the Golden Age, the Bronze Age, and the New World Age, which he refers to as the New 52. And and I guess that it's either that's all or it's in that order. Not completely sure. But, you know, I guess he wasn't a fan of, of the post-crisis. Sorry, Andrew. I don't know why I'm apologizing. It's not like I worked on it. Never mind. And over on the group page, David Riley writes, I like all the eras of Superman, but if I had to pick only one, I'd go with the Bronze Age. That's the era that I started reading and collecting comics in, so I'm more partial towards it. So that makes sense, since that was my reason for post-crisis. Jeffrey Taylor says, Guess. Hmm. All right, so I'll put him down for the New 52. Jan Roman Picula, or Ian Roman Picula, Man, write in and let me know how if I'm saying your name wrong. I apologize. It's one of those two ways. Anyway, his era is from is the from Crisis to Crisis era. Before 2009, I didn't care one way or the other about Superman, but because of the TV series Smallville, a sudden interest in the Man of Steel comics by John Byrne, and a certain podcast on the interwebs, now I have a new favorite superhero. Over the last couple of years, I've been slowly but steadily reading my way through all his FCTC appearances. Good stuff. I wonder what that podcast is. Hmm. Uh, Paul Riches writes... From Crisis to Crisis. Okay. And Greg Barr writes, Crisis to Crisis, hands down. I've been getting the Bronze Age stuff lately. Or, I'm sorry, I have been getting in the Bronze Age stuff lately. Just starting a deeper read through all of the Silver Age, thanks to the showcase volumes. So there you go. Apparently, From Crisis to Crisis wins out. Which makes sense, because I... I believe most of the people that responded probably are right around my age. I could be wrong, but that makes sense. So, thank you all for responding. Uh, now for the next super question. You ready? You're going to want to write this down. Not really, you'll probably get it anyway. Uh, what is your favorite Superman imaginary story? Which includes the Elseworld story and anything involving the multiverse or hyper time or any other variant version of telling an imaginary story uh, you can re- post a response on either the Facebook fan page or on the group page or if you're allergic to Facebook uh, you can shoot me an email at superbronze1970 at gmail.com Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages In September 2011, a new show hit the internet called Bailey's Batman Podcast. Its premise was to cover the Batman comic books from the first appearance of Jason Todd on. It lasted six episodes and then disappeared. And now, 
it's back. That's right, folks. Michael Bailey here with the news that Bailey's Batman podcast has returned with a new format and a new release schedule. Before, things were pretty rigid, and I was sticking with just the comic books. Now the show is more casual as I cover what I want to talk about in regards to The Dark Knight when I want to cover it. The comics, the movies, the animated series, the trading cards, the action figures. Anything and everything is fair game with movie and episode commentaries and special guest hosts as well. So head on over to www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com every two weeks to check out the latest episode. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Bailey's Podcasts and check out the Bailey's Batman Podcast page on Facebook. Bailey's Batman Podcast. The best Batman podcast on the internet. Hosted by Michael Bailey, that is. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Our issue for this episode is Superman number 300, with a cover date of June 1976 and an on-sale date of March 11th, 1976. The story is titled Superman 2001, 
Written by Kerry Bates and Elliot S. Magan. Penciled by Kurt Swan. Inked by Bob Oxner. Edited by Julie Schwartz. And co-edited by Bob Rosakis. Which you don't see too much, so that's interesting. To celebrate the tricentennial issue of Superman, National Periodical Publications proudly presents a modern-day recreation of the greatest hero of our age, Superman. Years ago, a baby landed on Earth from the far-off planet Krypton, a baby adopted by a kindly couple named Kent, who grew up as Superboy in the town of Smallville, then moved to Metropolis and began to begin his astounding career as the Man of Steel. Yes, readers, that is the legend known around the world. But now you're about to see what would happen if that baby landed on Earth today, in 1976. A baby who would grow up in 25 years to become Superman 2001. Now the prologue. Spinning around a great red star sun, the planet Krypton was a world of dreams for the strong race of men and women who tamed it. They had built a civilization on the lands of this wild world, but there came a day when the dreaming died. One man, a prominent scientist named Jorel, had warned of the disasters, only to be dismissed as a madman. Though Jorel, Jorel, wow, Elmer Fudd, though Jorel and his young wife Lara, Lara would perish with the home of their ancestors, there was one hope for survival. Their infant son, Kal-El, was placed in an experimental spacecraft and blasted free of the planet in the throes of death. As the fabled world of Krypton became a part of the past, the baby Kal-El sped into the realm of the stars and to the distant planet Earth, where their future awaited. Flash forward to February 29th, 1976. Happy birthday, Michael Bailey. And we see the Apollo Soyuz Radio A radio to mission control that a UFO is entering Earth's atmosphere. The rocket is tracked to its landing spot in North Pacific International Waters. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union head out to retrieve the rocket, but in their carelessness, the helicopters get too close to each other and crash, exploding. Only one man survives, and so it is that U.S. Lieutenant Thomas Clark claims the rocket for the United States. Later, at a maximum security facility in an unknown part of the United States, scientists attempt to cut open the rocket with a super laser, but it proves to be an impossible task. Fortunately for them, that's okay, because the hatch decides to open all by itself, and the child inside is just as invulnerable to the laser as the rocket. The child is hungry and repeats the phrase in English, Spanish, and Russian. Then he flies off, crashing through a wall in search of food, which he soon finds in the commissary. Soon the child eats enough to feed an entire platoon and is taken into custody. Later we follow General Kent Garrett as he's being brought up to speed, or briefed, uh, on the boy and the powers they've discovered so far, including flight, invulnerability, x-ray vision, and heat vision. We also learned that the general designed a uniform for the child and had them use blankets found inside the rocket to create it. The general and a lieutenant then enter a top-secret room where they meet the Kid of Steel, wearing what we know as the traditional supersuit, complete with red underwear and yellow belt. This time, though, the S stands for Skyboy, who reveals that he knows all of Earth's languages thanks to teaching machines inside of his rocket. Meanwhile, at a meeting of the United Nations in New York, a representative from the USSR threatens that if rumors of a child being found in the rocket are true, 
they will take any means necessary to prevent American indoctrination of the space visitor. But threats alone can't stop the world from spinning, and the years roll on. And by 1990, the new Empire State Building has reclaimed the title of the world's tallest skyscraper, stabbing a full mile into the sky. Supersonic aircraft no longer harm the ecology of the land, departing and arriving at floating seaports instead. And the hollowed White House remains unchanged, except that it is covered by an impenetrable dome, protected from all who might do the president harm. Plus, 1990 also marked the year that the U.S. president... Now, I don't know exactly how to say this. It's either Weiner or Wiener. Or Wiener? I don't know. W-I-E-N-E-R. Not sure how to say it. Weiner? Anyway. Uh, the president finally confirms the existence of an alien baby, to which the Soviet premier threatens grave consequences if the U.S. does not present the child to the world and make him a ward of the U.N. However, by 1990, there is now a third world power who is never named who secretly plans to use this to eliminate both the U.S. and the USSR. To do this, they launch nuclear missiles at both countries, then block both the U.S. and Soviet radar systems so that they each think that the other fired the missiles. In retaliation, both countries launch their full assault of nukes. However, Skyboy decides that enough is enough. Creating a super-strong lasso, he gathers all of the airborne missiles, Superman 4-style, and tosses them at the moon, where the Americans have set up a laser defense system which destroys the missiles. Flying back down to Earth, he then blocks the launch of Polaris missiles from an American sub, then heads to California, and prevents a Soviet poison gas cloud from harming anyone by flying around the cloud at super speed and forcing it up out into the atmosphere. Realizing that this war was basically because of him, Skyboy flies off and goes into hiding. But in the aftermath, or, and in the aftermath, both the U.S. and the USSR hold a dis disarmament conference to put an end to their differences. However, General Garrett the only father that Kal-El had ever known, could not handle the stress of World War III that didn't really happen, and died. At his funeral, Skyboy is there in a disguise of a suit and glasses, and decides that he may not be ready for the powers he possesses. So he takes his Earth Father's first name, Kent, and the last name of the man who claims his rocket, Clark, and vows that Clark Kent will never use his superpowers again and caps that off by placing his supersuit in a suitcase and throwing it into the ocean. Fast forward again to the New Year's Day 2001, where we see news reporter Clark Kent hosting a global news broadcast and reporting that 2001 has just arrived on the American East Coast, where a huge metropolitan area from Boston down to D.C. has, been, has now merged into one city, calling itself Metropolis. However, this report is interrupted by a disturbance at Times Square, where a being known as Mocha, like the coffee, I guess, claims to have been the one to, to have stopped the missiles 11 years earlier and demands the world's allegiance. But Mocha is really just an android controlled by that same unnamed third world power from earlier. And unfortunately, Clark is the only other person who knows that Mocha is lying. So he returns to where he disposed of his supersuit, dives into the water, and emerges again, flying out as Superman, complete with his super uniform. 
Superman arrives in Times Square, but Mocha punches him down into the ground. The Man of Steel then sends rocks and asphalt flying at Mocha, keeping him distracted, while he busts up from below the villain and punches him at super speed. Then he tries to talk some sense into the crowds who believe Mocha, while he tears the android apart. Before he leaves, he tells them all that it wasn't Mocha who saved them. It was someone who wanted them to look within themselves for salvation, not heroes or false gods. He then flies off, remaining a mystery to the world. Not long afterward, a statue of Superman is erected in his honor at Times Square, and when an admirer asks reporter Clark Kent if he thinks that they'll ever see Superman again, he just says that if the world is unfortunate enough to need a hero again, he's pretty sure Superman will return. All right. My notes for this story, page one. First of all, uh, you'll notice, and I read this part at the beginning, uh, National Periodical Publications presented this story because this is before they decided to be known as DC Comics. Yes, the DC... There is a version of the DC Bullet on the cover and on the cover of all of the books, but that's not the official name yet. I don't think that happens until Jeanette Kahn comes on, and she is not there yet. Um, let's see. Also on page one, since this, is the, since this page is from the far-off future of 2001, they have to update the saying from It's a Bird, It's a Plane to Superman, or It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, to It's a Bird, It's a Stratojet, It's Superman. Because, you know, planes are so 20th century. Page 2. Everything that happens on Krypton is pretty much exactly the way we know it, apparently. Um, at least from what we can tell. Obviously, it's been truncated to all fit on one page. However, it is a cool page with different stages of Krypton's explosion being shown in between the panels, uh, showing the L's preparing to put Kal-El in the rocket and launching it. Another difference is that the rocket is colored to be a metallic silver instead of the traditional blue with red fins like we would normally see. I don't know if this is a something that the colorist just didn't know, or if it was a kind of a subtle hint that this is, or not a hint, because we already know it's not your normal Superman story, but if it's just a subtle reference to show that this is a different version. Uh, page three, uh, we see the Apollo Soyuz uh, floating out in space. Uh, Apollo Soyuz was the fi final Apollo mission and the first mission, or the first time spacecraft from two different nations docked in space, and American astronauts actually met Russian cosmonauts, and they worked together on a joint mission. However, that mission took place back in July of '75, uh, both the launch and the return to Earth. So it was long over by February '76, and even by the time that this issue came out. So, or was would have been written even. So, I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, also, something I generally forget, since the Cold War has been over for nearly 20 years at this point, is that the Soviet Union was around in 1976, and they were definitely at odds with the United States. Uh, so, which makes this feel like a very realistic depiction of what might have happened if a rocket from space landed on Earth in 1976, um, especially with all the Soviet-U.S. relations. It 
definitely makes it make, gives it a real world aspect. Page five. Uh, here we have two changes. Um, both are one's pretty subtle, but the other one's a little more obvious. Um, first of all, Kalel's outfit is colored slightly differently. Traditionally, he th his outfit is blue shirt, red shorts, and little red boots. Um, f on this one, they give him a red shirt and blue shorts. He gets to keep the little red boots. And I'm not. And again, I'm not sure if it was uh, a coloring error or if it was just one of those subtle nods that this is a different Superman. Um, secondly, Kal-El emerges from the rocket speaking fluent English, Spanish, and Russian, and probably a bunch of other languages. Um, it's, most of the stories that we know of when he's a child, he's all, me am hungry, me, need, me, want, me want to fly, pa, and stuff like that. In this, he's like, I am hungry. I want to eat something. Please give me food. Um, and, you know, he can speak any other Earth language, so obviously the teaching device really helps. Uh, page 6, panel 4. Um, I actually chuckled a little bit. Uh, we see General Garrett ask the lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant, are you sure he is a baby? To which the lieutenant responds, Oh, yes, sir. He told us so. Just thought that was funny. It's the only way they really know he's a baby. Page 7. I love going back to these old issues and seeing how futuristic they thought we'd be at a time that is actually still in our past. Um, for example, this glimpse of 1990... Not really close. Um, and the clothing is really weird. I mean, it's not... There's not as much futuristicness to it as the 2000 one part of it, but um, obviously there's no new Empire State Building. They don't have sea ports or sea airports, and heck, even supersonic aircraft are now banned, so they don't even use those. So yeah, well, at least not for passenger flights. Um, on the other hand, the United States has a female president, which is actually pretty forward-thinking for 1976. So that's kind of cool. Uh, page 8, the Soviet premier looks a lot like Lex Luthor, but with a handlebar mustache. Like he stole it from Luigi. Um, however, it would have been nice if they had given a name to that third world power, because, you know, you, you can't really tell by looking at them. So, you know, it, you, know you never know. Um, skipping ahead to page 14, I like here how Skyboy's actions help show the world powers how foolish the Cold War was and leads to a disarmament. Although the fact that most of the weaponry was already destroyed in the process probably didn't hurt things either. It also makes sense that since this version of our hero was raised in isolation on a top-secret military base rather than by the Kents in Smallville, that after his first outing he'd kind of be too scared of the world and even of himself and his powers to go at a skyboy again. So it kind of makes sense. Page 16. On one hand, most of the predictions of life in 2001 are so very wrong, with hover chairs and they call it like a tri-screen? Yes, the tri-vision, which appears to be um, like a 3D television, which obviously we have now, didn't have in 2001, but 
It looks more like it's kind of a hologram type thing based on the image that they show that it's 3D, yes, but it's projected from the top down. Excuse me, to instead of, you know, being on a screen and being three-dimensional where, where you wear glasses. So, so that's a little different. But um, the idea of a 24-hour global news network is pretty close. Although by 2001, we actually had more than one, you know, with CNN and Headline News and a couple others. Um, it's still impressive, though. Also, the look of Mocha isn't terrible. Swan's not the best designer of outlandish characters like this, but this is probably one of his better ones. I mean, he's got kind of a superheroish outfit, but slightly futuristic. I mean, he doesn't have a, you know, a belt like you'd have in the 20th century, and he's got four arms and it looks pretty realistic for four arms. Um, but his face looks a little weird. Yeah, it's not the best, but it's still one of his better ones. Page 17. It's pretty cool to see the return of Superman here, especially since they since yeah, especially since he's never referred to as Skyman or even Skyboy again. Page 18. Uh first, it's kind of annoying that the people in Times Square are so darn gullible. I mean, this guy with four arms just shows up and says that he was Skyboy and everyone just believes him without any proof. And doesn't have any problem with his demands that they all, you know, follow him and listen to him and follow his rules and all that stuff. On the other hand, it's an interesting role reversal to see Superman fighting someone and having the crowd root for the other guy. So that's interesting. Page 19, while his speech was a, is a bit out of character for Superman, such as calling the crowd gullible fools, it's kind of important to remember here that this is basically a different guy Again, he wasn't raised by the Kents, so he had a different upbringing, so he's not the same Clark Kent he was. So, therefore, he's going to act differently as well, a little bit. So, it actually kind of works. Granted, since this is just one story, and there's a lot of jumping around in time, we don't actually get to see much of him acting, like him, you know, actually talking and doing stuff, because most of it is just set up for some, a couple of super feats. It's still, you know, it isn't the Superman we're used to of any era, so that's something to remember. And it's another subtle way to show that, you know, this isn't your usual Superman. Overall, this is one of those times where picking a story apart for a podcast actually gives me more appreciation for it. In addition to the obvious big changes, there were a lot of small, subtle changes that really, to me, only served to enhance the story instead of hindering it in, in any way. Once again, Bates and Magan combined to create an interesting story that I think is worthy of an anniversary issue and of a retelling of Superman's origin. Uh, the only slight quibbles I have um, are, number one, how did Skyboy know about all of the different attacks set up by both the U.S. and the Soviets? I didn't get the impression that they would really give him top secret knowledge of American stuff. Granted, he could have heard it with a super hearing, so he may have known about the American stuff, but he seemed to have some pretty good knowledge of Soviet stuff too, such as the gas cloud. Um, and number two, in 1990, he was 14 years old, so he was also supposed to be hiding from everyone, including the United States government. So how did he create a legal identity for himself 
that he would be able to use to make a life for himself as Clark Kent? I mean, it wouldn't be maybe if he if there was a Batman, but according to this, the world doesn't have any heroes. My guess is because they didn't have Superman to inspire them, so there isn't a Batman to help him out. This is way before there would be an Oracle to help him out. Um, and again, like I said, he's supposed to be main, you know, going into hiding. So he's got a few years before he could just be an adult and get a job somewhere. So it would have been nice to mention that, but I really don't know how they would have been able to fit that into the story. Uh, the art in this story is really quite good, in my opinion. Um, don't really know what else I can say about the Swan Oxner team, other than it's just really cool. I really like it, and it's just good stuff. Okay, and next up, we have everybody's favorite part. Well, probably not really, because I would think that the story would be more fun, but in any event, next up is the ads. Uh, again, this is uh, March 1976, so we've got some interesting ones. Um, well, the first one's the hostess ad, so I'll get I'll come back to that. The next one is a uh, an offer for a special magic set from Charms. You know, they make the lollipops and the blow pops, and you could get three different kinds of magic sets. So that's kind of cool. Uh, the next page, the top half has a bunch of those gag gifts. And other things like a spy scope, a thousand and one free things, a potato gun, a money maker, sneezing powder, that kind of stuff. And the bottom half is <laughs> for the mighty meat snack that conquers the horrible hungries, make sure you snap into a Slim Jim. Uh, let's see. And moving right along, the next ad is for. Uh, new! Order the official Young America for 76 Bicentennial t-shirt now. And you've got three kinds of t-shirts. You've got one with the American Eagle on it. Uh, another one with a whole bunch of people of different ethnicities pulling, putting up the American flag. And the final one is the launching of an American rocket. Looks like an Apollo mission kind of thing. Saturn rocket. Now, the cool thing is that you've got, first of all, this is a photograph ad. You've got three kids, all looking very 70s. Um, and the girl looks like she's got a crush on the, on the one dude. But the young child on this, the little kid, is the guy that played Willis on Different Strokes. Uh, so that's kind of cool, actually. I recognized him. The next page is another, one of those hodgepodge page of ads with all the where they sell all the small different spots for really cheap to get the uh, ads in there, such as learning to fly, uh, an evil Knievel model rocket. I don't know how that's supposed to teach you how to fly, but whatever. You know, karate lessons, comics for sale, patches and medals and plants and more comics and things like that. Uh, let's see. Next is, have you seen this coupon before? And basically it's for the LaSalle Extension University where you can uh, do a correspondence course in many different fields 
for example, electronics, restaurant management, banking and finance, accounting, real estate, that kind of stuff. Uh, the next page is the DC Age of Super Goodies. Uh, the first uh, part of the ad is for Superman and Batman piggy banks, uh, which actually looks pretty cool. Superman and Batman standing there with their arms folded. My guess is the piggy bank part is either at the top of their head or the back of their neck, just from a couple of piggy banks I've gotten lately. Um, you can get books, such as the fine cloth-bound books Superman from the 30s to the 70s and Batman from the 30s to the 70s, both of which are actually interesting. I like how they say it's, uh, each book is 386 pages with colorful illustrations, even though not all 386 pages are are in color. Interesting way to put it. There's the Super Adventure Color Form set, uh, which basically appears to be uh, basically your super your fa your favorite super friends on color forms. Although if the box is any indication. Uh, they've got everybody except uh, let's see, 76 would be you'd be to the Wonder Twins by then but you know, they don't have Wendy, Marvin, or Wonder Dog and they don't have uh, Zan, Jaina, or Gleek and then they also have puzzles, there's a Superman puzzle oh wait, I'm sorry, there's three fantastic pu superhero puzzles to choose from Batman versus the Penguin Batman and Superman fight a prehistoric monster or the Superman action scene, which appears to be Superman fighting a shark. Each one is 200 pieces big. I don't know if that's proper English. And when it's finished, you'll flip! So, the prices are actually pretty good for now. I don't know about then. The Superman book and the Batman book were 13.45, plus posters and handling. So that's pretty interesting. I like how it says to oh, and they each have a different amount of postage. Interesting. Uh, the next page is for two giant specials. The first one is a limited collector's edition Batman special. It opens with a striking new painting of the Batman, and inside an unusual collection of the Masked Manhunter's most baffling mysteries, probably to my guess from the Silver Age. Maybe the Golden Age, too. Plus a two-page layout of the Batman's new home, and as a special extra, three pinups of Batman and Robin. Now, new home... Now, I've never read this, so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Batman's new home would be the fact that Bruce Wayne is now at the Wayne, Inter Wayne Tower and has a penthouse there and created a another bat cave in the basements. So that's what I'm guessing that is. Uh, another limited edition book is the is more secret origins of supervillains, and according to this, four of the most notorious criminals in comicdom: Catwoman, Mister Mixias Pitalik, Mirror Master, and Cheetah. Uh, their origins are told in tales of how they became the foes of Batman, Superman, Flash, and Wonder Woman, respectively. Also, special features on other super baddies and a spectacular 3D diorama. Now, I just want to point out that the cover barely shows any of them. Um, if you got the book, you would think you'd be reading stories about just based on the how the characters are in the front here. Bizarro, Captain Boomerang, 
Catwoman is one of the front three. Then in the next tier, you have Mirror Master, Scarecrow, and I think that's King Shark, or The Shark. Uh, Mr. Mixius Pitalik floats around behind them. It's hard to see because of the coloring, but I see Cheetah and I'm guessing Dr. Alchemy. Uh, and then behind that is, I'm guessing, Vandal Savage. So, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so that's kind of false advertising, if you ask me. Uh, the next one um, is uh, when I planned to retire before 50. This is the business that made it possible. A True Story by John B. Hakey. And he started with borrowed money, and in just eight years he gained financial security, sold out at a profit, and retired for Duraclean International. I don't know what they do. I'm guessing they clean. But I didn't really want to read through it. Uh, the next page is, imagine making up to $100 in a single hour, operating a quote-unquote business, and it actually quotes them, business, you can carry in your pocket, which is basically selling jewelry. Uh, and this looks like nice jewelry, so I'm guessing it's all fake. So, yeah. And let's see, next, uh, DC salutes the Bicentennial with a great free offer. Look for our July and August covers, which have the red, white, and blue headings, and are identified by a right number 1 through 33 in the corner. If you send us at least 25 different cover headings, meaning that DC Comics is asking you to destroy the cover of, tw of at least 25 books that month, we will send you free a metal Superman belt buckle. That's right. It's even got an antiqued silver finish. And it lists the cover, the books that will have... Well, that's actually kind of cool. It'll, it actually lists the books that will have the different covers on them. And in the order they'll be, com they'll be appearing, they'll have the numbers in, or be appearing in. Um... So yeah, they want you to get at least 25 of the DC Comics books and then cut up the covers and send them into DC to get a belt buckle. Uh, all the mail must be postmarked by July 4th, 1976. That belt buckle doesn't look that cool. Uh, the next page is another hodgepodge page. That's two for this issue. And... Uh, in, let's see. Uh, last, the last interior page is one of those prizes for cash sales kits. Um, you know where you gotta sell stuff and you earn pri You know you earn money or points or however it works, and you get to pick out like a basketball, a baseball glove, a Snoopy radio, a calculator, uh, an air hockey table, a train. A camera, a racetrack set, a bowling lane. Oh, I've seen those. Those are little. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Actually, huh, a train is part of it. Complete with tracks. Inside back cover is for monogram snap-tight airplane models. The new Spitfire, the Messerschmitt, and those two are new. And then the Tiger Shark P-40. I'm sorry, P-40F and the Mustang P-51D. So there you go. And the back cover is for Spalding Products, um, which has some of that cool kind of Mad Magazine type art showing, you know, baseball players chewing bubblegum with their baseball gloves. So basically for baseball gloves. 
but you can also get a t-shirt for five bucks and that's it for the ads um you know it's frustrating not really fr you know it's unfortunate that once again we get a hostess ad that Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner have not covered on their shows which means you're stuck with me again so if you'll bear with me this one is the Joker as the cornered clown we see some cops outside of a tall skyscraper and it says we know the Joker is holed up in that building and over the bullhorn a cop goes come out with her hands up Joker and inside the Joker's looking out and goes <laughs> you have to toss me back in that padded cell I may be crazy but I'm not stupid I still have a trick up my sleeve it's like in the old movies. You be the Keystone Cops, and I'll throw pies. And he throws a whole bunch of Hostess fruit pies out, and they go, duck! And then they go, duck nothing? These are Hostess fruit pies. Oh boy, cherry. Yum, apple. Now, while their guard is down, I'll sneak out, and our guard is never down. Not even while eating the, this tender crust and real fruit filling. It's back to Arkham Asylum for you. Just one question, Joker. Why didn't you keep any Hostess fruit pies for yourself? Because I don't like them. Wow, he is crazy. And you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. And yeah, I didn't try to act like Mark Hamill is the Joker, uh, because, you know, this is pre-Crisis Joker, and he wasn't... He was a little zanier back then. As it turns out, though, Kurt Swan's version of Joker isn't that bad. He actually looks pretty good. I like it. Maybe he had help. But the other art's definitely Kurt Swan. So, anyway. Uh, other books that were released the same month as Superman 300. Okay, we had Justice League, number 131, pitting the Justice League against a bunch of animals. This is also, by the way, appears to be Ernie Chan month. As most of the at least the most of the superhero covers were by him this month. Commandy, the last boy on Earth, number forty-two, which has Commandy versus the Coyote Cowboys, and the covers by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, somewhat attempting to mimic Kirby, at least on with Commandy. Uh, that limited edition collect the limited collector's edition C forty-four Batman issue, which by the way the cover. The painted cover looks a thousand times better than the cover printed in the comic book. Um, I still think it looks like a Kurt Swan Batman, but painted. Uh, but the cover artist credit is given to Wally Fax. So I don't know if he drew and painted it, or if he just painted it. You know. Looks really cool, though. Very. It's really. It's actually kind of cool, because you've got uh, kind of a Silver Agey, uh, Kurt Swanny. Uh, new era kind of Batman from as he might have looked maybe even when uh, Carmine Infantino was drawing him uh, right or the new look Batman you know before Neil Adams but after he got the yellow oval but with the way it's painted in the dark sky and the blackened city it really looks like you know it really looks cool uh, the secret origin of supervillains that I told you about that's here and yeah, uh, let's see back. Superman Family Number One Seventy Seven. 
in which Supergirl becomes the Bride of the Stars. Um, Superman marries Lana and Lois, technically. That's a reprint of a Silver Age tale. And we also find out who Jimmy Olsen's Silver Age love, or Secret Love, which is also a reprint of a Silver Age tale. Because at this point, it was one new story and then a bunch of reprints. Swamp Thing number 23. Um, featuring Swamp Thing versus Saber. Uh, let's see, Batman number 276 features Batman against the Spook. Uh, the Metal Men number 46. Is this a new story? Well, I'll be darned. It is new. And it features... And it's by Walter Simonson. Interesting. But it's it features... I mean, I just, I'm sorry, I'm blown away. I didn't know Walter, Walt Simonson did any Metal Men work. But anyway, um, it features the Metal Men versus Kimo. Or Kimo, depending on how you want to say it. Brave and the Bold number 127 features a team-up of Batman and Wildcat with a cool Jim Aparo cover. Flash 242 as the Flash being eliminated by a woman who touches the ground and eliminates him. It also has a Green Lantern backup story. Plastic Man number 13. Uh, looks like Plastic Man's fighting a double of himself. Also plasticky. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 217. And yes, by this point the superheroes had taken half the billing. So Superboy's no longer on his own for a few more years. Uh, and they go up against... Well, the, it's the charge of the Doomly Engineers. I don't know who the villain is. Doesn't doesn't say. And I can't tell just by the look. Wonder Woman number 240... Oh, I'm sorry, 224. With Wonder Woman versus the United States. And they say that, although the cover actually shows Wonder Woman uh, versus the mascara. So that's weird. Uh, interesting to note is that this story is written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, and inked by Vince Coletta. So that's interesting. Uh, Kurt Swan wasn't on Wonder Woman for very long. World's Finest number 238 features Lex Luthor and her uh, and her. Lex Luthor and his daughter uh, against Batman and Superman. And of course they've done something to Superman to make him large, uh, some kind of super giant freak. But his head makes him look like super kid. So I don't know what's going on there. Super Team Family is another couple of reprints. Batman vs. Eclipso and When Superboy Meets Superman. Action Comics number 460 involves uh, an alien trying to kill Steve Lombard, probably with good reason, and Clark trying to figure out a way to save him. It also has a Mr. Mixia's Pitalik backup story. Detective Comics number 460. Um, it's got two Batman on the cover. Um, kind of interesting. Uh, with a backup feature of Tim Trench, who I've never heard of before. That's really weird and interesting. And finally, we have Shazam, number 24, uh, featuring the world's mightiest mortal versus Savannah. Makes sense. Uh, let's see. 
And that's going to do it for this, uh, for my portion of the show. Next up, J. David Weeder presents Superboy and the Bronze Age. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not fight Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. Sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age the adventures of superboy exciting stories of superman when he was a boy who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of earthlings superboy who as clark kent mild-mannered foster son of martha and jonathan kent preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Welcome back to Superboy in the Bronze Age, where I, J. David Weeder, choose a Superboy story from this time frame and present it to you, the lovely listeners of Superman in the Bronze Age. This time around, I've dug up a story I've been wanting to present since I started this segment, Dark Strangler of the Seas, from Superboy Volume 1, number 171, an issue that was released on November 19th of 1970, with a cover date of January 1971, and this was a story by Frank Robbins, with art by Bob Brown and Murphy Anderson, and the issue itself had a cover 
that was by Carmen Infantino and Murphy Anderson and depicts Superboy standing in shock as the lifeless body of Aquaboy is fished out of the water. That's right, this is the issue that introduces Aquaboy, the younger version of Aquaman. And the story opens with Superboy stumbling upon two fishermen who pull something big and sludge-covered from the water. They think it's a monster Superboy knows better. And Superboy plucks up the oil-soaked figure and washes it off in a vat of industrial detergent. With the sludge gone, Superboy gets an introduction from Aquaboy, who explains that he can breathe underwater because he's half-human. Aquaboy was swimming along when he spotted one of his porpoises drowning from being covered in oil. When the dolphin died, Aquaboy went after the crew of a nearby ship that was leaking oil. In his surprise attack, Aquaboy got knocked out and thrown back to sea and covered in oil by the crew, and dolphins carried the wounded Aquaboy to shore where fishermen found him. Back in the present, Superboy and Aquaboy go to the offices of the tanker's owner, Trans East Oil Company, and demand that they get their tankers back to shore and repaired. But when the company refuses, Superboy takes care of the ships himself by flying them out to the desert and spilling the oil out onto the sand. Then he drops the ship off at a repair dock, demanding that it be sealed tighter and to build the owners. Superboy returns to the owners, delivers an ultimatum. Repair your ships, or he and Aquaboy will shut them down. And the duo stays true to their word, finding ships across the sea as the owners set a trap with an actress pretending to be Aquaboy's girlfriend, Marita. Aquaboy falls for the trap and gets himself caught in a net, which is revealed to be dangling over a vat of nitroglycerin when Superboy arrives. With Aquaboy as hostage, the ship's crew orders Superboy to leave them be, but the Teen of Steel uses his super speed and his invulnerable cape to fly he and Aquaboy through the nitro tank and out the bottom of the, bottom of the ship before anything can go boom. The decoy ship is destroyed, but the crew is rescued by Superboy and taken back to land. With the battle won, but the war on pollution just beginning, Superboy and Aquaboy part company for now as newfound friends, and instead of the end, we have the beginning. Well, what a wacky little adventure. It's, it's definitely not burying the lead. It's an anti-pollution story, through and through, and the title even refers to the oil spilled throughout the story. Now, my notes begin on page three with Superboy having a hunch that the oil-covered figure may be a surfer who hit an oil slick. Well, Clark, uh, that would make a regular surfer do deader than disco. So, well done, sir. And on page four, Superboy tries to make Aquaboy stay above water, uh, above the surface of the vat of detergent, to be accurate, not aware of his powers. But Aquaboy has to be underwater to breathe if he's out of the water for over an hour. But here's the question. How does soapy water equate to breathable water? Wouldn't a fish die in detergent thanks to the chemicals? So wouldn't that transpire to uh, Mr. Aquaboy as well? Hmm. Not sure. Uh, on page 6, I actually feel bad for the dolphin. I do actually feel bad. Oil pollution is not a joke. And it really does wreak havoc on sea life. Just look back at the BP oil spill from a couple of years ago. And it's, it's sad, sad stuff. Now, on page 7, Aquaboy uses a pair of starfish as a climbing instrument, sticking to the side of the boat. At first, I thought, well, that's kind of cruel, but until you think that starfish can manage the weight of water, which is quite heavy, then Aquaboy's weight doesn't seem like much of a burden. It is just kind of goofy, though. Uh, page 11, even though the pollution is an issue, Superboy and Aquaboy break some international laws, breaking the ship out of the water and then billing the oil company. It's not legal, kids. None of that would stand up in court when the ship repair company comes calling for their money and can't get paid because the repair request was not valid. So with that one, innocent people could lose their jobs. 
So, sorry. And the big one for me is on page 12, when Superboy empties out the oil tanker onto the desert sands. That still has an impact out of water. There are still desert creatures. There are still lives that are effective. And it's not the same. I know sand absorbs the oil, but oil is actually underground, well beneath the, the sand itself. It's not the same, dude. Bad things for the, for the environment. And then I'm going to jump to page 15. We get Aqua Boy's girlfriend, Marita. Who? Wait, who? That's right, this is a brand new character, and she never appears again, so I'm going to go ahead and call Shenanigans. And on page 16, Aqua Boy and the Dolphins, which is actually the best panel in the story. At the bottom of the page, awesome looking, great Aquaman shot. And then, page 20. Sad page 20, when Superboy causes the ship to explode by diving into the nitro. Now, while this was a cool effect, with him moving that fast... The ship runs on gasoline, and there's all kinds of who-knows-what on that. So when it explodes, that gets thrown out to sea, and that could be, well, not good to leak into the ocean. I'm sorry to throw logic in there, but just calling it like I see it. And now, kind of throwing logic out the window, I have to admit that despite its flaws, I really enjoyed this team-up, mainly because I like Aquaman. And it's honestly, it's just a goofy, silly ride. If you, if you find this issue in the back issue bins, I say go for it. Um, yeah, don't put too much logic in there, but this was the Bronze Age after all, and that means the stories were more fun than logical. So until next time, I'm J. David Weeder, sending you back to my own personal Aquaboy, Charlie Niemeyer. Alright, thanks David. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Superman and the Bronze Age. I want to thank you all again for listening, uh, and don't forget to respond to the super question. And we'll be back in just two short weeks with Superman Family number 200, in which we get to celebrate the wedding anniversary of Lois Lane and Clark Kent. We'll see you then. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.